how many of you grew up in a church setting that was that observed the church calendar, the Christian calendar? Anybody? Grew up in a setting so you would talk about things like Advent and Lent and Epiphany and uh, I, I did not grow up in that environment. We grew up being suspect of people who grew up in that environment. So, you know, we were sort of aware of it, but we, it was in, you know, we were praying for those of you who were observing it. Um, but something happened for me uh, around the, the year 2005, 2006, and I was introduced to uh, the meaning and how that uh, observing the calendar uh, had certain rhythms built into it and how it uh, was a helpful way to think about where we're going during the year. And it ended up becoming very meaningful. Things like Advent and Lent I found very, very meaningful. Um, today on the Christian calendar, I talk about this because today is the day known as Pentecost. How many of you heard of Pentecost before? Okay, so today in the sermon, we're gonna get Pentecostal. Like that's what we're gonna focus on. And so some of you just got a little worried, didn't you? Um, so today we're just gonna talk about what is this day of Pentecost? What's it about? What is its meaning? Um, because the way I've come to understand Pentecost, it says a lot about what it means to be part of church. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean um, that not only in this room, but people all over the world gather together on this day and think about what it means to be church? So I want to give you a little bit of the word Pentecost, where it comes from, and then I want to jump into a, a text. So we've got first, the word Pentecost is a Greek word that literally means 50. Uh, and it refers to, it's a, it's a Jewish festival that takes place 50 days after the celebration of Passover. So it's a, it's a festival that takes place 50 days after a, another festival. In Hebrew, it's called Shavuot. Anybody ever heard that before? Shavuot, and it literally means weeks. It's the Feast of Weeks, weeks after Passover. Now, what the holiday originally celebrated was the giving of the law, also known as Torah, the giving of the law to Moses. So in the book of Exodus, there's this encounter where Moses is on a mountain, and he's given um, the Ten Commandments. You've seen the movie, right? Um, this is not a spoiler. Um, He's, he's given the Ten Commandments, and he, you know, he walks down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. It's a commemoration of that festival. It's also sort of an agricultural um, festival. So in the, in the beginning, this was a time of remembering that the law was given, um, that the, the 600 plus commands of Torah had been handed down to the people. Now, there's a story in the book of Acts that occurs on the day of Pentecost, and this story that takes place on the day of Pentecost is what shapes, what has given shape and language to um, the Christian celebration of this. And it's found in Acts chapter 2. And it's actually not the story I want to look at today. But it is a spectacular story. And by spectacular, I mean lots of spectacular stuff happens in it. Um, the first followers of Jesus are gathered together in a room. And then there's a howling wind, right? And there's fire. And people start speaking in languages they don't know. And there's commotion, and like 2,000 people are like, we're signing up for that. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's essentially the story of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And actually, it begins with them, the first Christians being accused of being drunk, to which they respond, it's only 9 a.m., which I think is a fantastic response. They're like, no, no, it's only 9 a.m. Um, and uh, that's sort of the story, the popular imagination story around Pentecost. And it's spectacular and it's got a lot going on. And, and what's really interesting, if you take the story from Exodus about the giving of Torah, 
and you take the story from Acts about Pentecost and you lay them on top of one another, what you'll find is that the author of Acts, Luke, has included every single element that took place in the giving of the law to talk about the giving of the Spirit. And he's trying to make a, a sort of uh, juxtaposition of the two. And I think you have to be careful uh, and the first Christians weren't aware of this. Many of them had come, were Jewish, so they weren't aware of the anti-Semitic uh, overtones to some of that discussion. Uh, but I think what Luke was trying to say, in the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, there's all this spectacular stuff, and 2,000 people end up dying as a result of it. In the book of Acts, the giving of the Spirit, all the spectacular stuff, and 2,000 people are given new life. He's sort of making this juxtaposition of law and spirit. And I think that's an important story. It's, it's worth spending some time on. But I, I want to go, there's another Pentecost story. And it doesn't even take place on Pentecost, believe it or not. And it's found in the New Testament. And so the, the way Christians have thought about Pentecost has been, it's like the birthday of the church. Right? Um, it's the giving, and I use giving in quotation because it's the giving of the Spirit. Now, here's why that's problematic. The giving of the Spirit assumes what? That it was, all, that it was gone, right? That it was something that was away and that now was being given, which is actually not the reality. Pentecost isn't about arrival, it's about awareness, Pentecost wasn't about something showing up that was previously missing. Pentecost was about a group of people having their eyes open to what had always been true. Right? We have spirit. We have the energy of the divine, the energy of the source, the energy of God flowing within us. It's not somewhere else, and we have to go and climb and do all this stuff to get it, jump through all these hoops to get it. It's something that is and we are either awake to it or we're not awake to it, right? And I think there are times for a lot of us that we've gone through rhythms of life where we've been really, really awake to it, and then times where we've been really, really snoozing on it, right? But it doesn't make it any less real or true. Pentecost is about awareness. Now, but the story I want to look at is from John chapter 20, and it doesn't occur on Pentecost at all. It occurs on Easter evening. So Jesus has been raised from the dead, uh, and some of the disciples have seen an empty tomb and they don't know what to make of it. And then a little later in the evening, this happens. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Next. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. This is a Pentecost story. It's a story about spirit. And there are four words that pop up in this story that I want us to spend some time on. The word peace, the word sending, the word breath, and the word forgiveness. And let's begin with peace. I think it's really interesting when Jesus enters in, by the way, the disciples are where? Hiding in a locked room, right? Because their, their leader has been taken out and they could be next. And so they are in stealth mode, door locked hiding, and Jesus pops into the room like you do. 
right? We've all been there, just pop into a room. Jesus pops into the room, and what is the first thing Jesus says to them in the room? Peace. Peace. Can you imagine what they were expecting? I mean, this is not their best day. It just hasn't been their best weekend. They've, they've talked big game and then ran, <laughs> right? They, you had some of them saying, we will die with you. And then when push comes to shove, where are they? Gone, right? And Jesus is back. And you've got to assume when somebody's back from the dead that they're pretty special, that maybe they can appear in a locked room and you can't, right? So that there's maybe, maybe you have to be a little bit nervous about this person. Jesus pops in the room and you think maybe what he would begin with was, how dare you? You cowards. What about all the talk? What about the whole will die with him business? You were gone. You ba- abandoned me. You bailed. You rejected. He doesn't enter with shame. Shame on you. He doesn't enter with judgment. He walks in the room, says, peace. And then if they don't get it, he follows up later with, peace be with you. And he does a weird thing. He shows them his side and his hands. All right. <laughs> get that score in a minute. Um, I wonder if that's the sound that Jesus made when he came into the room. Jesus shows them his hands and his side. The wounds are part of the resurrected Christ. They don't go away. The wounds don't disappear. And actually, it's through the wounds that they recognize who Jesus is. Richard Rohr talks about wounds becoming sacred wounds. And the way wounds become sacred wounds is when they are used to bring healing to the world. The the people that I've known in my life who have experienced great tragedy and great wounds, and and they've been able to turn those wounds around, not to define their life or not to limit their life, but they've turned them around and used them as sources of healing for the people around them. The risen Christ shows up with sacred wounds, and he speaks, and when he speaks, he begins with peace. Not shame, not judgment, not all the ways you've dropped the ball, not all the ways you've missed the mark, not all the ways you've messed up. How many of you have ever had to do that walk when you were a kid to your parent, your guardian, the authority in your life, knowing that you were done? Anybody ever had to do that before? You know that feeling, that shame, that fear, that I don't know what's going to happen next. I bailed on them, maybe they'll bail on me. And the risen Christ appears and he begins with peace. And then he says, I'm going to send you out into the world. And he uses this specific language. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Now, I understand for lots of people that that language of Father is uncomfortable, and I get it. Um, So you can substitute whatever word makes you feel comfortable. As the Mother has sent me, as the Source has sent me, as Morgan Freeman has sent me. Like, however (laughs) you identify with God, like that image that's meaningful to you, have at it, right? What Jesus is saying is, I was sent into the world for a, a task. And that task has been to make people aware of the boundless love of God. That task was to make people aware of, the language of Jesus' day was kingdom of God, right? Uh, It's to make people aware that there's a way of living and relating that is available, and it's here, and if we open our eyes, it can change everything. 
And Jesus says, just as I've been sent, now I'm going to send you. And I'm going to send you out into the world to make everybody else aware of this. I think it's interesting that foundationally the, the Christian church, the, language, like the thing was about movement. If you notice, Jesus doesn't say, all right, I want you to find some place, I want you to set up shop, and I want you to expect everybody to come to you, and I want you to tell them what's wrong with them. No, Jesus says, I'm going to send you into the world. There's work to be done. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that work at the end. I, I think one of the tra tragedies of the Christian story has been that Jesus intended that we would follow, and instead we chose to worship. And we contented ourselves that that's what he had in mind. Like if we just gather, you know, once a week and talk about how great he was, it absolves us of, of any responsibility to be doing and continuing his work in the world. And I, I think Jesus' point was that as he had been sent, so have we. I, I always love the language when Jesus says to his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. I don't think those first disciples heard that as a metaphor. There were crosses all around them. <laughs> I think they understood he was calling them to a life of action, a life of engagement, a life that called them to where the pain of the world was, where the need of the world was, to do and be a balm, to do and be healing in that world. And then Jesus does something else. He breathes. He gets the disciples together, and he looks at them and he goes, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He literally inspired them. The word inspire means to breathe into. Jesus literally gathers these folks in a room and breathes into them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Sort of a divine CPR, right? What's interesting about the book of John, this is John 20. John begins like this, John 1, 1. In the beginning. I memorized that. Don't try not to be impressed. In the beginning. Now, I have no prizes to give away today, no stickers for your chart, but does anybody know another place in the Bible where the first words, hold on now, don't get cocky, the first words are in the beginning. Anybody know? Where? Genesis. The first book of the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning. So when John begins John's story of the life of Jesus with these three words, in the beginning, what do you think John is doing? I think John is doing a, a wink and a nudge toward Genesis. And what John is saying is, I'm going to tell you a new creation story. I want to tell you a brand new creation story. And what John does next is really interesting. John centers the entire story around seven signs. Uh, maybe this is new information, but John, essentially, his whole gospel is centered around these seven, what he calls signs, we typically call miracles, but the word sign means they point to something else, right? They're pointing somewhere to some other reality. And so there are seven signs in John. There's uh, changing of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. That's the first one, by the way. That's the first sign. I mean, if you were Jesus and you wanted to really start with a bang, I would have started with the raising of Lazarus. Right? I mean, you want to talk about street cred. Water to wine is popular with college students. <laughs> Raising Lazarus is popular with humanity, right? 
Uh, but that's not how Jesus starts. He begins with water to wine. Then he heals a royal official's son. He heals a paralyzed man at a pool of Bethesda. He feeds 5,000 people, not counting women and children. He walks on water. Uh, some, some people suggest that, the, that feeding and walking on water should be one sign, and the seventh sign is the crucifixion. You could make an argument for that. He heals a man born blind, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And again, some people would say, actually, there's, the seventh sign is that Jesus is crucified. Now, here's what's interesting. Seven signs. I'm going to ask you another question. Again, no stickers for your chart, but I'll give you a good job. How many days are there in a week? We're just learning together today. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah, seven days in a week. How many days were in the Genesis creation story? Seven. In the beginning, seven days. In the beginning, seven days signs. And then on Friday, the sixth day of the week, Jesus is executed. On Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, he rests. And what happens on Sunday? The tomb is empty. Now think, think about this in the terms of what it might mean for the first audience to hear it. When you finish Saturday, that's the end of a week, what is Sunday? It's the beginning of a new week. Do you see what John is doing here? It's absolutely brilliant. John is saying the first creation ends. And on the first day of the week, at dawn, there is a new creation being born. Remember the, remember the story in Genesis chapter 2 where uh, we're going to put the text up here, Lord God formed a human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils and the human came to life. All right, that image of the creator, the source forming a human out of dirt. The word Adam, by the way, literally means dirt clod person. <laughs> the first human was a dirt bag, <laughs> literally. God has this first human and he breathes into the human being and the human being becomes a living being. What does Jesus do on the first day of the week in the upper room? The first day of a new creation. He breathes into it. He breathes into the disciples. This is a wink and a nudge. In the first creation, God created the first human and breathed. And now on the first day of the week of the new creation, God once again breathes God's life into these humans. And I would say not as a way to give them something they didn't have, but as a way of calling their awareness to what was already true. I love what Spong, John Shelby Spong says about this. Uh, go back one. God had, according to the ancient creation story of the Hebrew people, initiated life by breathing into Adam the breath of life. Next. So now Jesus would breathe on the disciples and call them into a new dimension of life he came to bring. It was the new creation. It was to enter into a new way of what it means to be human. Think about the way we've tried to tell the Jesus story throughout 2,000 years. Believe this, check this box, sign up for this, or you're going to burn forever. I mean, how many of you find that compelling? Right? That's not compelling. Can you imagine if we'd started with this? How would you like to enter into a new way to be human? 
See, we, we've perceived it to be all about avoiding something. And what Jesus does, he meets the disciples and he says, I'm going to show you how to enter into something that has always been available, but that you have totally missed. We are called into a new way to be human. And then we are called to share with the world the new way to be human, which is a way of compassion and generosity and justice and love and kindness and goodness. And then the last word, Jesus talks about forgiveness. And this one, when he says this, I've got to be honest with you, when I first, every time I first read it in that text, when I'm going to talk about the text, it gives me a very technical term, the heebie-jeebies. And here's why. Doesn't it sound horrible? Go, tell the world they're for, go into the world, and if you forgive somebody, they're forgiven, but if you don't, they're not. Who wants that kind of power? Well, I, well actually, I think we do, right? That's what we actually want. We want that kind of power. We want to go up to people and be able to decide who's in and who's out. Who's forgiven and who's not forgiven. A couple years ago, three or four years ago, I had just gotten back from the Wild Goose Festival and um, my son is into um, big time professional wrestling. Does anybody have any, any WWE fans in the room? So we need to watch you at the end when we pick up the chairs so that you're not. So uh, their big weekly show was at Bridgestone and he and I uh, just got home from Wild Goose. The next day, Monday night, we came down to go to WWE. And I noticed something as we were um, getting ready to go in. We ran into some people. Let me show you a picture. I don't know if you could see that. Um, that, is, that was his first experience of a street preacher. And there are people outside. Um, this is one of them. Some of them had signs. Uh, the guy in the, standing on the floor has a Jesus Save shirt. The guy's on a, literally on a little step stool. I was still taller than him. Um, and he's got a megaphone. And they were just saying the worst possible stuff. I mean, going through lists of who's out. You do this, you're out. You believe this, you're out. I mean, just continually. And as we're waiting in line to get into the show, my, my son, who was probably like six, seven at the time, says, what are they yelling about? And I didn't know right offhand what to tell him. I had a lot of um, adjectives I wanted to use for these gentlemen. Um, some of the words I wanted to say, he didn't need to learn yet. Um, and I just said to him, I said, they, buddy, those people think God is really, really angry. And so they're telling everybody God's angry. He's like, but God's not angry. I was like, exactly. It's one of the things we told him his entire life. God is not mad at you. God is not angry. And then he, he said to me, he said, I think we should go tell them. To which I said to him, I don't think they're ready to listen. <laughs> but you think about that image. Somebody standing on a soapbox yelling, you're out, you're out, you're out. Because when they read this text, they think what it's telling them is go tell people they're out. What if that's not what is actually happening? What if what we're seeing in this text, what if it's Jesus essentially saying this? You have more power than you realize. And when you go into the world, if you tell people that they are loved and embraced by God, they will believe it. And if you tell people that God is angry and vindictive and going to punish them, they'll believe it. See, I, I don't think Jesus ever intended us to use our power to not forgive. I think he's making us aware of our own strength. I think he's making us aware that we have lots and lots of power in the world. And when people start speaking on behalf of God, 
People will listen to you and they will believe you. And our first word must always be grace. Our first word must always be to remind human beings that they are beloved and embraced by God right where they are with no exceptions. Because when you begin with the other, people will believe you. I, I can't tell you the number of times I sat down with human beings who, who, like me, grew up with an angry God, with a God who was very much interested in who's out. And, and, and somebody had to be out. For somebody to win, somebody else had to lose. And to this day, lots of us carry around that tape in our heads, right? That, that, that even when we know, we know, we know, we trust deeply that we're beloved and accepted and embraced, there's still this little tape in our head that says, but really? But really? But what if you died tonight? Right? Jesus' first word, he says to the disciples, is you, you've got power. You can go into the world and announce that everyone is forgiven. Or you can go into the world and say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And when you do that, it creates certain kinds of problems and certain kinds of people. It creates people who believe that somehow God has rejected them. And I think what Jesus' intention was is that he meets these disciples in this room and he <sighs> breathes the spirit on them. That they would, they would turn and go into the world <sighs> and do the same thing. Pentecost is about receiving the breath and then going into the world and breathing it. Are you with me? So let's have just a moment um, before we sing. Um, if you wanna close your eyes, you can. If you wanna keep your eyes open, you can. Let's just breathe together for a minute. Let's just take some breaths in and let them out. And as you are doing this today, as you're breathing, first of all, maybe take a moment and be grateful for what's happening right now. You are pulling air in and you're setting air out. That means you are alive. So maybe begin with just a moment of gratitude. And then as you breathe in, maybe think about all the guilt and shame and lies that have been, said, have been told to you. And as you breathe in, may you realize you are breathing in God. The God who calls you beloved, the God who embraces you. The God who fills you with breath after breath after breath. And as you breathe out, may you breathe out that, those lies and that guilt and that shame. With every breath, may you be reminded that none of those things define you. With every breath, may you remember that you are embraced by God. And no one can take that away from you. They didn't give it, and they can't take it. It is yours. And maybe as you continue to breathe, open yourself up to the possibility that you are being sent into the world to remind other people how loved they are. That you are being sent into the world to remind people that they have meaning and purpose. That you are being sent into the world to start an epidemic of love and goodness and hope everywhere you go. Ground of being God of love.
we breathe in today to be reminded of our value, to be reminded of our worth, our belovedness, our significance. We're reminded that just as in the beginning there was breath that brought life, you breathe into us and bring us life. May we receive that today. And may we go into the world, wounds and all, wounds that that can become sacred wounds, to share this breath with everybody who needs it. Those who need to be reminded of their belovedness, those who need to be reminded of their worth and value, those who need to be reminded that shame is not the final word on our lives. May we be a people of Pentecost, a people who have been inspired to then go out and inspire. And as we breathe, we are grateful that we get one more breath. May we use it well. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.